Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and this week on the Roundup, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. And as we do each week, we take our stories from our weekly newsletter called All the SMIE News Fit to Share, and I'm dropping a link to our uh, website for smieconsulting.org slash subscribe where you can subscribe to that newsletter and get it in your inbox at 9 a.m. Eastern every Monday. I'm also going to drop the link to this week's edition for those of you following along at home so you'll be able to see all the news stories that we're referring to as we go through some of these questions today. Uh, for those that are uh, using LinkedIn more than anything else to for their uh, international edification in terms of getting news stories and such, we do have a, a LinkedIn version of that newsletter available as well that I'm including in the chat. So please do check out those links to subscribe to the newsletter so that by the time Wednesday rolls around, you'll have a pretty good idea from those news stories that are covering social media, international ed stories over the last seven days. And we'll have you'll have a good idea what three questions we might be asking uh, here on the midweek roundup. And as we do each week, we try and look at questions that are uh, impacting our profession our international education profession, particularly for us in the U.S., we take a look at those, uh, the, the, the data that's out there in the wider world that helps us get a better sense of where, what trends might be uh, going our way or uh, things that we need to be aware of as we're developing our plans to recruit in certain areas. So we cover these questions uh, from a U.S. perspective, but with a global lens. And we also look at how other countries are dealing with issues at certain points during the during the year. Uh, we'll, we'll cover if there are uh, a spate of news stories about the UK, we might take a look at what's happening there and that, how that might inform what we do in the United States uh, to help improve our overall international education plans. So that's our thought for the day in terms of how we, we hope, to, hope you can use this content that we provide here on the Roundup. We'll give you the news and our cut takes on those on Monday morning, and then we'll go in-depth into three of those themes that we see developing in the news in our midweek Roundup. So thanks again for making us a part of your weekly journey, whether watching live on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn. Uh, we really are appreciative of your, you including us in your weekly uh, international edification. So as we do each week, the first question, let's jump right in and get to the topic. And it is, what do new student surveys tell us about changing priorities? And this is an important one because every time we see surveys, we have to take everything in context and obviously find out the uh, the, the level of uh, uh, the breadth of these surveys, the, find out how much, uh, if, if this is just a, a, a agent survey or a student survey or agent and parents survey, look at the breadth of the countries that are represented. And I'll leave that uh, micro uh, analyzing of each of these survey uh, details to, to your audience, to each of you, uh, as you can make your own informed decisions about that. But I'll present my kind of high-level thoughts on what these uh, two student uh, surveys, uh, one of which was conducted by ICEF, the other by FPP. Now, I reference these because uh, we are um, at, uh, in international education, these are two respected uh, voices in the field. Uh, ISEF certainly uh, has been involved in agent certification and agent training uh, for many years and holds their agent uh, 
workshops around the world every year and uh, successfully in many locations. Uh, in the U.S., they usually do one uh, timed around the IRC conference in December. Uh, they also do uh, w workshops across Latin America, across Europe, uh, and Asia as well, and the Middle East. So they're, they're, they certainly are experts in bringing agents and institutions together in terms of finding uh, common ground. And what they've done uh, in this most recent survey is uh, they, it's, a, it's part of their agent voice survey. I was conducted earlier this year, earlier this summer, I should say, uh, that uh, looked at where what some of the key drivers are in agents' minds uh, for students uh, looking overseas, what's making uh, them decide in to one destination or the other. Uh, the, the agent voice survey suggests a, a, a rather not surprising, but uh, certainly first time it's showing up as a top factor in the agent's mind for their students and parents. And that is uh, cost of living has now become the number one driver in the agent's minds for their uh, students who are looking to go overseas. So cost of study and living abroad. So what that means is not just for the U.S., not just for other Western destinations, but other markets that are coming into play. Uh, and that's the, one of the other features of this survey was that uh, agents in, a, in nearly a dozen top source markets uh, named countries including Germany, South Korea, Spain, Italy, France, and Japan as destinations on the rise to compete with the major four uh, Anglophone destination markets. So uh, we're seeing uh, a shifting landscape, and as we've talked many times here uh, on, the, on the Roundup and on, in our newsletter and through our SMIE consulting services, working with individual institutions, when you have a global perspective on what's going on in the world, you know that, yes, uh, the U.S.'s share of, of international students has shrunk. Uh, it has shrunk from probably a third to 30 percent in the late 90s to currently about 20, 21 percent of the internationally mobile students in the world are coming to the United States. So we've lost market share, but that pie has also more than doubled in that time uh, from about 2.7 million in the turn of the, uh, the millennium to where we are now uh, with nearly 5 million international students studying abroad. So we see this big pie uh, and we see uh, not only has it become more com competitive amongst the English-speaking destination countries, it's also become a much more crowded marketplace uh, and where you see these other countries that uh, the CISOF survey mentioned, Germany, which basically gives free education to even international students other than their housing. South Korea, Spain, Italy, France, and Japan. China should be on this list as well. Uh, Pre-pandemic certainly would have been probably not so much now. But you see these other markets that have risen up uh, and have obtained pieces of that market share that have reduced our overall numbers, uh, overall percentage, but our overall numbers have continued to grow with the pandemic exceptions, uh, which I think we'll see a rebounding uh, in this fall's uh, IIE snapshot survey from fall 2022. And certainly the 21 results would show probably an increase, uh, modest increase from the previous year's uh, enrollment, international enrollment declines that we saw for 2019 and 2020. So let's take a look uh, with beyond this agent, ISEF survey, agent voice survey. Uh, you see after cost of living, 
cost of study, cost of living as the number one driver now for international students and their parents. The other factor, uh, next two most significant factors are what we've talked about is becoming more important over recent years, and that's the post-study work and uh, opportunities for immigration in certain countries, 66%. Uh, 75% cost of living and study, 66% work and immigration opportunities in the destination country, and then next up, 61% availability of visa processing, because we know how significant visa processing issues have become in the last few months, uh, with uh, Canada, UK seeing huge backlogs, and in certain countries that the U.S. is doing very well in, you're seeing backlogs as well uh, in India and across uh, Western uh, West Africa. So we see some challenges here and we certainly see that uh, there's other data in this survey that uh, ICEF prov provides. The second one that I want to talk to you about and uh, which gives you a more of a direct feel for the students. Uh, the, obviously the ICEF one is uh, agents impressions of what their students and parents are feeling about. Uh, this next survey from FVP are uh, those that are using uh, FVP's um, platform, the student world, to connect with universities around the world uh, and different markets, uh, Canada, U.S., other markets around the world, U.K. Uh, those are three, uh, service, three areas that they're primarily servicing, and Australia as well. But uh, they, these respondents are uh, students actively on their platform, actively looking for university places right now. And some of the insights might, might not seem surprising. One of them is uh, probably will stick out. Uh, would you, and the first question is, do you prefer to meet a university admissions director online or in person? 67% of the students that responded to this uh, suggested they, they want to meet that person, uh, admissions director, online. In person, about a third, a little less than a third. So there's still, for those that are using the FVP platform, obviously they are already self-selecting into a virtual environment, so they're probably more comfortable with that. Uh, but still, a third would want to see uh, that person in that representative, admissions representative in person. And in terms of who they want to see, who they want to speak with before they commit to study abroad, uh, admissions reps are uh, up there, right up there at 45%. Next up, current students, the next single largest group, then professors, at, uh, and, professors and current students are about the same, uh, and then local agents. Uh, so that's, those are the four main categories of uh, who these students want to speak with before committing to going abroad. So interesting data from that survey are that, that particular, those particular questions. Uh, we're, we're talking about the, the registrants uh, for this, uh, the student world, uh, that's the FPP plat virtual platform, student-facing platform, uh, that these uh, students were invited basically from the everybody through the first half of 2022 were asked to participate. They're coming from 172 countries and territories, uh, too many to list individually. Uh, they are... Uh, they're in, in right in the target range for uh, college age demographics. The greater majority are within that 18, under 18 to 24 year old uh, demographic with only, I think, 20, 25% above uh, 24 years old. So older potential graduate student markets. Now, uh, Africa did provide the largest source of students for this FPP fair, FPP survey data. Uh, with uh, nearly 26, seven, almost 2,700 uh, respondents uh, so that were coming through the fair. But it, is a, it does have a good cross-section across the globe after uh, Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, Pakistan, Cameroon, Philippines, Brazil, Kenya, Bangladesh, Ivory Coast, 
Algeria, uh, Ethiopia, Morocco, Colombia, Rwanda, South Africa, India, Afghanistan, Turkey, Mexico, Sri Lanka, uh, Liberia, Peru, and Tunisia. So an interesting mix of Latin America, Middle East, and Asia. So in terms of uh, some of the key, other key questions that were asked, I think uh, knowing that they want to speak with admissions directors, what does that mean? Um, knowing that they want to also get in touch with the students and professors as part of their journey. I think that's highlighting some areas that perhaps uh, maybe the current students you, you're in involving or alumni you're involving in your international admissions, but how are you engaging with professors uh, at your institution in your recruitment process? Uh, are you doing specific things maybe through virtual open houses or uh, maybe admitted student events later in the cycle where you would have opportunities for students from those who are interested in those disciplines have opportunities to chat with professors from the field. So those certainly stick out as areas that we want to look at. But uh, the question about where students are accessing information on study abroad opportunities is important, I think. Uh, and we've seen changes in this over the years. Used to be college search engines were by far and away the number one uh, search with 40-50% of all respondents. Uh, we're now seeing that social media has become uh, has become cl clear in a way probably with close to 40% search engines down near 25 to 30%. Uh, so we're seeing clear, uh, clear uh, predilections to using social media as part of their college search. Now that, that, that should be an interesting uh, point of reference for you because uh, obviously you have search social media uh, activities that are uh, you're hoping to drive interest in your in your institution that you're hoping whether they're ads whether they're posts on, on across social media but uh, you want to know how your institution is being talked about as well and having that component of social listening in what you do uh, needs to be a piece of that puzzle so uh, so that you know what you're how, how you're being referenced in, in in the marketplace but also how how and where you can respond uh, and knowing which platforms, again, is an important piece of that. But we're seeing a clear move toward um, these, uh, obviously digital still uh, has sway over most everybody's uh, decision-making process in terms of the greatest majority of, um, of sources used are gonna be digital of some way, way shape, or form. But uh, those, uh, those search engines are still, still a valid part of that process, but social media has become increasingly so. We even saw this a few weeks back. We saw a post that uh, showed that TikTok is being used by students as a search engine. And that's frightening because <laughs> uh, if your institution isn't on TikTok, maybe that would be even more frightening in that you don't know, how to, don't know necessarily how to explore that space. But certainly one that I would recommend uh, paying attention to is if, if you're, if you're going to have a presence on social is make sure you're listening to how your, your institution is being talked about because that's where students are going to find out information about you now, whether you like it or not. So that's their search engine now, not necessarily just a college search site like a Hot Courses or a or, um, or study portals or one of these other, many other uh, platform, lead gen platforms that are out there. So uh, definitely recommend digging into this data from FVP a little bit more uh, in terms of where, um, what, what platforms that are using most to get information on study abroad, that was the next level down. Uh, and you see Facebook at 38%, Instagram at 33%, YouTube at 13%, Twitter 1.9, TikTok 2.2, and other 10.9. So it might be the WeChat versions or other other platforms that are out there. So Facebook still and Instagram too. Um, those two are the primary drivers with nearly over two thirds 
of students that are using social media to get information about study abroad are doing so through Facebook and Instagram. We think Facebook's dead in the United States. That might be the case. It may be less impactful for, for students in the United States, but abroad, it still matters in many markets. So that's something to keep in mind as you, as you make your way through. So let's move on to our second question of the day. And that happens to be, who is winning the battle for African students? Now, Africa is a market that is a very complex one. It's, a, it's one that uh, often gets a very bad rap in terms of uh, the chances of getting students out, that they all need full aid, or that the, there's a lot of fraud in the market, the, the uh, funding isn't, isn't there, or if they are, they're using uh, irreputable or disreputable agents to get there. So there's a lot of chatter out there, negative chatter, about uh, recruiting students in Africa. But the reality is uh, they are the fastest growing, it's the fastest growing continent and region of the world, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, with the largest youth population in the, on the planet uh, and a rising middle class in many of, the, many of these key markets. Now, uh, the data that we're sharing first is a University World News article by Zhaofeng Wang, who's at uh, Amherst College in Massachusetts and has been, has been writing quite a bit in the last three years, um, particularly during the pandemic, about how Amherst has been working with uh, uh, parents and students and uh, school networks in China and has, has produced some really good uh, articles over the years for that. Uh, but uh, now uh, Xiaofeng is, making, uh, is talking about the impact of China in Africa. And that's, uh, that's, that's one that kind of, kind of sticks out a little bit in terms of, well, who, who's, if you haven't been paying attention in the last few years, China has done quite a bit to expand their global footprint through their Belt and Road initiatives. And this is a multi-layered, multi-level uh, plan that the uh, Chinese Communist Party rolled out in the late noughties to expand its soft power influence in the world, Belt and Road Initiative. And they've done that through infrastructure projects, through uh, loans, through all sorts of building projects in South and East Asia, through all uh, of Africa, and even into Europe. Uh, so these have been ways for uh, China to gain influence uh, with uh, governments in those countries. They have educational partnerships that they form. They have scholarship programs that are very generous for Africans to African students to come and study in China. So the one of the facts from this uh, from the Zhao Feng's article is that uh, in all in, in ter terms of raw numbers going out of Sub-Saharan Africa abroad that uh, China actually has the second, is the second largest recipient of Sub-Saharan African students after France. So the US is actually in, I think, third, and then the UK is in fourth, or it might be switched. But France, China, the US and UK are the next leading countries in recruiting African students. So there's a lot of, um, of, uh, of, of a lot of challenges, as we know. Uh, we've seen issues with funding. I've worked at institutions back in the mid-90s that had actually, because of problems with previous students coming from certain African countries, that they would come, get to campus, and suddenly plead poverty after showing bank statements that they had more than enough to cover two years of full education. Uh, that, uh, that problem uh, caused us at this institution to require a full semester's tuition deposit in order to ensure that we were getting students who could pay their, full, pay, pay their bills to come to actually enroll in our campus. That also helped with uh, the visas at, the, at that time. 
But now visa denials, denial rates uh, are in excess of 50% in most West African, country, West African and Sub-Saharan countries. So that has posed some challenges for uh, institutions that have been trying to recruit heavily in this region. We're getting a lot of applications, but maybe not a lot of completed ones. And those that complete uh, and uh, go for visa appointments, getting a far, far fewer of those than they might have originally thought, or given the amount that, of time and uh, effort that they have invested in those countries in recruiting in those countries. Maybe it's a lot, maybe it's not, uh, not much. But what I can say is up until the pandemic, uh, there have been undergraduate recruitment tours, um, primarily led by CIS, uh, the Council for Europe, Middle East, or the Committee for Europe, Middle East, and Africa, which I used to serve on back in the day, uh, did regular yearly recruitment trips to Africa going back to as late as the late 90s or early 2000s. Those stopped during the pandemic. So there hasn't been a regular tour to uh, Sub-Saharan Africa to recruit students, particularly at the undergraduate level. So it's been the one-offs, it's been the small groups that, that have been going lately. Meanwhile, China has come in with significant aid, and they, that aid has made a difference in terms of bringing students from Africa to the United to to China. In this case, uh, Af U.S. U.S. institutions have. Uh, seen know and realize this that they've recruited there for a while and probably have seen more success recruiting African graduate students than undergraduate students because of the aid that they might be able to get in terms of assistantships and other scholarships. Uh, for the undergraduate students to come from Africa to the U.S., they need to have substantial, there, there may be the few families every year that can afford uh, most, if not all, of the, of the full edu cost of education at your institutions, but they're few and far between. Uh, they're a growing number, but uh, for the majority of Africans that are applying to your institutions, they are still going to need some aid. Uh, and how much you're able to get, particularly for undergraduates, unless, unless you're a D1 school and have athletic scholarships to kind of pick and choose some of the, some of the best candidates, uh, it, might, it might be a tougher sell. So it's a, it's a matter of uh, prioritizing your, in, your institutional resources and if diversification is on your radar as a, as a, as a, as a, as a point of, your, of a strategic plan for international recruitment, diversification should include Africa. And that might mean there, you need to have scholarships specifically for students from that region that can at least get your foot in the door in some of these countries to uh, potentially build a pipeline after you get one, they, come, they tell two friends and back home and they tell two friends and so on and so on. And then you have a shampoo commercial with thousands of Hollywood squares lit up uh, with new students coming from those countries. So that's an old reference and I'm, sorry, I'm dating myself from the 70s and 80s here in terms of uh, my commercial memories uh, from back in the day. But uh, this article from Xiaofeng certainly gives a, a nice perspective on China's role in recruiting in Africa, bringing students, and how, uh, how well or not well U.S. is positioned. And uh, some quotes in there from Diane Weiss Young from uh, uh, Education USA, React for uh, West and Central Africa. So definitely recommend reading that article. Next on this list, in terms of Africa, is Ghana. Uh, Ghana shows that uh, it's been one of the steadily growing outbound markets uh, for, uh, for Western nations to recruit. Uh, Canada, UK, Germany, and the US are certainly some of the key destinations for Ghanaian students. Uh, it has a large youth population, stable democracy, according to this ISIP article that I posted the link to, and uh, has English language proficiency uh, make it, that make it uh, a very favorable uh, and attractive source market. So, though the overall numbers are still relatively small, 
The good news is overall they have doubled from 2010, nearly doubled from 2010 to 2020. So from about, uh, about 9,300 to 18,200 over the last decade. So the good news is the numbers have steadily been rising. So there's trends, and that's not just all the U.S. Uh, actually, the U.S. has um, uh, are, uh, for, for U.S. educators, after Nigeria, Ghana is the second largest market. Uh, and, and there were in Open Doors data in last year, there were over 4,200 Ghanaians in the U.S. Uh, in the US. So um, for the U.K., they have, I think, uh, 2,600 in 2020. So uh, U.S. Is, is, is the number one market. Uh, Canada's at about 1,200 right now uh, in 2021. Uh, so you see U.S., UK, Canada, as and then Germany as some of the top, and we don't have the numbers com comparable numbers for China from Ghana, but uh, consider that uh, be to be in a market that you'll certainly want to keep your eyes on. Uh, that 57 percent of the population is under the age of 25 in Ghana. Talking about that, that factors we just said with the larger Africa piece. Uh, that uh, these are the countries now that uh, uh, certainly. Uh, uh, U.S. Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs within State Department is, is highlighting Ghana among some of the key uh, top 10 or 11 countries that uh, U.S. institutions should be paying attention to in terms of recruitment opportunities. So uh, definitely keep your eye on Ghana uh, and probably a market that will continue to grow and I would certainly uh, see uh, that will be uh, be something uh, something that most institutions will be looking to prioritize. One of one of my, the institutions I've been consulting with recently, they've they have a president who has ties to uh, to Ghana from Ghana. Has uh, they've established a uh, articulation agreement with uh, with, with uh, Cape Coast College, uh, and they are now getting a steady pipeline or hoping to get a steady pipeline from that as a result. So. That you, you be creative with how you go after after certain markets that you might need to be partnership driven as opposed to individual uh, one on one student by one student by one student. So it will uh, you'll you'll find ways to to get into all these different markets if you're if you're smart. Now one uh, as we move transition to this next question and this is the last one for the day. Where are student markets? Uh, we cannot ignore. I would include Ghana and Nigeria in that mix, probably Kenya as well, uh, as growing markets uh, that uh, you have to invest in. Uh, it's just an, it's not going to be something you want to get left behind on as those markets continue to expand. Uh, what I would say is that uh, Ghana include that in this next question here of where uh, some of these student markets are that we can't ignore. The two that uh, are going to pop up most are India and Indonesia. And we'll be dropping the links to to those here in the chat as well. And the Indian numbers, uh, this article from Pi News this past week on India and the second one on Indonesia and their outbound TNE, outbound and TNE uh, potential is quite remarkable. Uh, what you see from India is this uh, is a recent survey that showed 50, over 50 57% of India's middle, middle class families are inclined to spend on overseas education, according to new research. Now, I'm not, um, they're defining middle class in India as uh, those between, uh, incomes between uh, 3,700 to 12,000. Uh, I don't know if that's annual, uh, just as an income of between 3,700 3, to 12,000. So I'm, I'm guessing that might be annual, and if it is, uh, that not all of that obviously is gonna be uh, 
12,000 a year. I'll believe that's maybe that's a month. I don't know. It doesn't say. But what it does suggest that I don't know what that size of the middle class uh, in India would be, but certainly with a billion three a population, even if the middle class is only 20 percent, uh, that is still over 100 million in <laughs> uh, fa- uh, 100 million. Uh, 100 million families. Well, 100 million families might mean uh, uh, 50 million students, perhaps, uh, in, in the mix. I don't know those exact numbers, and I don't want to uh, say claim to know what that looks like. But just even on conservative numbers, that would show that, uh, that that's a huge potential there. Now, cautionary caution here is that not all of these are going to be able to afford a full boat at a at a U.S. institution or any uh, major Western destination, but uh, it, they are like many other countries, like the um, like the data we saw from the uh, agent survey at the top, is that they're open to other markets. Uh, they're looking at New Zealand, France, Ireland, Italy as other destinations that they may be considering. So uh, they are by 2025. Here's one of the the mouthwatering uh, stats that they include from the survey. Uh, Indian students are expected to see over 2 million Indian students fly out by 2025. Uh, that will mean over $100 billion on their spending over $100 billion on their international education. Wow. And that's just India. By in the next three years, we'll have 2 million students studying abroad. And that, that will be rivaling, uh, probably surpassing China at that point. Uh, in terms of the amount that they're amount that are going abroad and the amount that they're spending on international education, so you've probably already seen it. Uh, it's there isn't another India or China out there, but India is a market that you've been seeing growth in, in the grad market again, which is comforting. But you may also be seeing, and which I think is going to be a much larger phenomenon in the years to come, is is the growth of the Indian undergraduate market. And I'll actually be presenting about this uh, at the ARC conference in December uh, with. Um, uh, Manisha Zaveri and uh, Derek Alex, uh, Manisha from uh, Career Mosaic in India, one of the larger agencies there, and Derek Alex from University of Houston. So shout out to both of them. I'm looking forward to presenting with you on this important topic about India and the rise of Indian undergraduates. But uh, another market that uh, the Pi News covers in depth is, uh, through its article, is Indonesia. Uh, potential is huge there. Uh, again, factors that we've talked about in the past about young population, rising middle class, uh, increasing higher educational enrollment rates. Uh, there's huge promise there. India, uh, Indonesia has been targeted by the UK as one of the top five priority regions, countries uh, for the British government, uh, for universities in the UK. Uh, you see the idea of improving their own higher education system and wanting to have international universities set up in country. So the doors are open to that in ways that support Indonesia's development of benefits local institutions. Uh, but it's also a way that uh, there's going to be more outbound students going uh, uh, through a government scholarship program as well. So don't uh, sleep on Indonesia either. So there's a lot to lot to go over, and we're running out of time here today. But I do want to say uh, a special shout out to those who are uh, continuing to download our podcast each week as part of their listening. Uh, if you like the audio only version of this, rather than uh, the recorded sessions on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn, uh, certainly happy that, to have you part of the International Ed family here at SMIE Consulting, and looking forward to chatting with you more in the weeks to come. So until next time, have a wonderful day.